One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. we can expect a reaction from the Houthis. They'll lash out now. There'll be some propaganda, some pictures showing the strikes have caused damage to a school or something like that. So we need to be ready for that. I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I just find bombs and I find dead people and like maybe one day I'll end up like them but it's a really scary thing for me. <laughs> it's Friday, the 12th of January. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to Defence Editor Danielle Sheridan and Telegraph writer Tom Sharp to hear the latest news and analysis from the Red Sea as Britain and America strike Houthi positions after months of attacks on civilian and military vessels. Then, I catch up with Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilieva, who brings us the latest news from Israel as the IDF continue to battle Hamas across Gaza. Later... Senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan speaks about her story on how the Chinese state forced ethnic Kazakhs to round up Muslim families in Xinjiang, who were then never seen again. And finally, journalist and academic Matthew Charles speaks about the internal conflict in Ecuador, where government forces fight drug gangs for control of the country. Let's start then with some breaking news. Last night, Thursday the 11th of January, Britain and America, with a number of other nations in support, struck Houthi positions in Yemen, after months of drone and missile attacks against military and civilian vessels. Here's Defence Editor Danielle Sheridan. Overnight, we found out that Britain and the US had launched airstrikes against the Iranian-backed Houthis in order to protect global shipping in the Red Sea. It comes after I was at a press conference with the Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, and he warned the Houthis to watch this space in terms of what action they would be taking next. Now, this is after the Houthis launched its largest attack since the conflict in the Red Sea began, where it targeted HMS Diamond and US vessels with, I think it was 21 missiles and drones, of which HMS Diamond, a Type 45 destroyer, took down seven. And as I said, Grant Shapps described it as the largest attack so far. We were expecting that there would be a retaliation 
because they needed to come back strong once the Houthis had not heeded their warning, which was to de-escalate. If anything, they went further, they went harder, and they have shown that they are not willing to to stand down from this. It all stems from the October 7th attacks in Israel. As we know, you've got Iranian-backed Hamas, now we've got the Iranian-backed Houthis, who say that they are fighting for the rights of the Palestinians. So then last night we had one of the Houthis Security Council members posting on social media, do the Americans, the British and the Zionists expect that any hostile action against Yemen will distract us from defending Gaza? So, I mean, this conflict is red hot at the moment. I think the question on everyone's lips is what's going to happen next? Well, the severity with which the UK and the US and other nations kind of coordinated to retaliate was with extreme precision, but it was done so to to really crack down on them and say, this is what we are capable of if you do not de-escalate. I mean, last night we had four RAF Typhoon jets departing RAF Akrotori, which is based in Cyprus, at 7.30pm UK time. They were joined by two Voyager air-to-air refuelling tankers and a total of 14 targets were struck, two of which were done by the UK and both of those targets were successfully struck. So it shows that when these combined forces target the Houthis, they do so in an accurate and precise way. And that's something that the Prime Minister said in his statement, you know, he described it as limited, necessary and proportionate action in self-defence was taken. I think the messaging behind here is that the UK and other nations are not afraid to use the great arsenal that they have, but when they do so, it will be proportionate. So these four RAF Typhoon fighter jets headed out RAF Aquatory. So this is a really impressive aircraft. It's multi-role. It's capable of being deployed for the full spectrum of air operations, which includes high-intensity conflict. And basically, its most essential role remains being quick reaction alert. So it was able to use laser-guided bombs, which are highly accurate precision bombs to conduct these strikes. Now, we know that one was at a site at Bani in northwestern Yemen, which was used to launch reconnaissance and attack drones. And a number of buildings involved in drone operations were targeted by RAF aircraft, which feeds into this narrative that uh, the UK government are very keen to put out, which is that what they're doing is limited but also precise. And then the other location struck by RAF aircraft was the airfield at Abs. And the MOD, you know, overnight they put out a response kind of detailing exactly how they came to take this action. And they were keen to stress that in planning the strikes, particular care was taken to minimise any risk to civilians and that any such risks were mitigated further by the decision to conduct the strikes during the night. So, you know, you don't have civilians wandering the streets and whatnot. And it's a very measured response, really, because they are giving the Houthis uh, and therefore Iran the opportunity to back down. But it seems to be a a fight fire with fire situation right now where the Houthis can see what's coming at them. But the language that they're putting out in response is suggesting that that they aren't going to, to stand down, in which case, you know, 
one thinks that the UK, the US and the other nations will only have to up what they are doing. I think that everyone is waiting in anticipation of what the Houthis do next. I know I've said it before, but when Grant Shapp said the other day, watch this space, that is what I have been told this morning, you know, having spoken to government officials, they say that it's sensitive, it's a security situation, they can't give out details of exactly how they will plan, what's to come. It kind of all depends on whether the Houthis heed the message from the joint governments, which is to de-escalate and to stand down. And if they don't, well watch this space really well i'm certain we'll come back to you next week as this unfolds in the red sea danielle sheridan thank you so much thank you listeners will remember this week's bonus episode of battle lines where i interviewed former royal navy officer and telegraph writer tom sharp to hear his thoughts on the red sea as the u.s-led operation prosperity guardian struggled to nullify the houthi threat to shipping following last night's news i messaged him to ask for a quick update on his thoughts Hi, David. The first point is that Operation Prosperity Guardian wasn't working in its defensive format. Shipping companies weren't being reassured and the Houthis weren't being deterred. So something had to change. Uh, And uh, that's what's happened last night. Second point, these strikes are just part of the solution. They're not the solution. So the, the diplomatic efforts to coerce the Houthis into stopping striking needs to continue. But this is very much part of that. Third point, we can expect a reaction from the Houthis. They'll lash out now. There'll be some propaganda, some pictures showing the strikes have caused damage to a school or something like that. So we need to be ready for that. The fourth point, this won't be the end of it. This this won't be the solution. This won't be the end of the, of the conflict. This will carry on. And we need to be ready to sustain these strikes, do them again if necessary, and be ready to keep going. There's no quick solution to anything like this. And the final point is, um, what will this do to the Iranian proxies? What will their reaction be? What will Iran's reaction be? So the sort of whole regional knock-on effects will need to be carefully watched and monitored from here on. Thank you so much, Tom. The Israel-Gaza war is approaching its 100-day mark. The fighting, strikes and assassinations continue. So I caught up with our Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva to hear the latest updates from the region. Here's our conversation. Hi, David, and hi, everyone. We're almost um, 100 days into Israel's war on Gaza, 100 days since the devastating Hamas attack on um, southern Gaza. And that would be three months of the Israeli ground operation. And from what we're hearing from Israeli officials and the top brass, the military operation is nowhere near from being over. As was largely anticipated, the intensity of fighting in the north Gaza and in the central Gaza seems to have gone down as the United States has been warning Israel that it was time to move to the south and move to another phase which will not have such a devastating effect on local communities as it has been having. In terms of the situation on on the ground, again, this is the third month of war and just a couple of days ago there was a massive rocket attack on Israel, obviously showing that the biggest stated goal of Israel in this war 
which was declared to eliminate Hamas, has not been achieved because three months into the war, Hamas is still able to fire rockets in, in Tel Aviv, deep into Israel. But again, every day we hear reports and briefings from the IDF saying that they have discovered this or that Hamas tunnels and they have killed a number of Hamas operatives and discovered weapon caches. But this war has taken a while and it looks like Israel is not going to pull out anytime soon. Um, in an important diplomatic development, there was a hostage deal floated. I'm, I'm, I'm saying was because it looks like it's on pause now. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was in Israel earlier this week and he met with the families of some of the hostages. And the families told Israeli media that they felt hopeful after meeting with him because Blinken indicated that there was a promising negotiation track to get some of the hostages out. And as we recently found out, there is a um, Qatari proposal on the table for Israel to hold fighting, withdraw from Gaza in exchange for the release of all of the hostages and the exile of prominent Hamas leaders. And on Wednesday nights, Israel's war cabinet gathered to, to discuss this proposal. The families of the hostages have been pushing for any solutions. They've been very vocal about it, saying that we want any deal, whatever deal there is on the table, to release some of their family members. It should be accepted. But from what we're hearing, at least for now, this deal has been rejected on several grounds. Firstly, Israel doesn't feel like it's in a position to promise to ceasefire permanently. Second, Israeli officials simply don't believe that Hamas will be able to make good on its end of the bargain. They just don't see local Hamas leadership in Gaza going into exile. We're talking about Ahya Sinwar, the notorious leader of Hamas, who has defied Israeli attacks in the past, who has stayed in Gaza who has shown no intention of joining Ismail Haniyeh, Hamas's leader in Qatar, to join him in one of the luxurious apartments that he lives in, in Qatar. So at least for now, this deal is on hold. Obviously, the biggest story this week is away from the battlefield, and it's a um, court case that South Africa has lodged against Israel, accusing it of genocide in Gaza. As anyone can guess, court cases take months, sometimes years, but for this one, we're expecting quite significant developments as soon as this weekend, because South Africa just on Thursday started to present its argument to support its case. And on Friday, Israel will do the same. And just on Thursday morning, South Africa's justice minister in his initial remarks said that they felt compelled to lodge this case against Israel because they, they were seeing suffering in Gaza and they were doing so as, as, as part of the humanity without obviously, uh, you know, being geographically close or sharing much of historical ties of Palestine. He also made reference to South Africa's founding president, Nelson Mandela, and his support for the Palestinian cause dating back decades ago. Now, obviously, genocide is, is a very serious accusation, and I have spoken to legal experts on the both sides of the equation, and they all say that facts are on the ground. There was a lot of killing done in Gaza, but with the accusation of genocide, you need to prove intent, you need to prove that the accused party intended to destroy the, the opposing party, Palestinians in Gaza in this case, as a, as, as a group of people. And this is where the problem comes up. And um, if we look at the history of the International Criminal Court, which is considering the case this week, there have been several applications accusing other countries of genocide. In the case of Serbia in the 90s, it looked like they were very close to find Serbia guilty of genocide. They never did. 
it was very difficult to prove. In um, Israel, the, the, the reaction is quite emotional to those accusations because everyone still remembers the horrific attack on October 7th. And uh, a lot of Israelis feel that they are the victims and what they're doing in Gaza is simply responding to, to the horrific attack by Hamas. Israeli politicians from across the political spectrum has dismissed the accusation as, as witch hunt, as... Um, as one MP said, a circus show and anti-Semitism, and as a former prime minister called it the Dreyfus case of the 21st century, referring to the famous case in France, which was basically rooted in anti-Semitism. There's one piece uh, of, of the puzzle here that might make it easier for the International Criminal Court to eventually accuse Israel of genocide, and this is hate speech. And in Israel, we have seen an astonishing number of the most extreme language targeted at Palestinians, targeted at Palestinians in Gaza specifically. And this has come from across the political spectrum, from top officials, starting from the defense minister to rank and file MPs who have called for, and I'm quoting real examples, have called for Israel to drop an atomic bomb on Gaza, have called for, quote, burning Gaza who have called Palestinians human animals. And the legal expert I've, spoke to, I've spoken to say that those comments might make it easier, at least initially, for the court to accept the case, because not, not because of the statements as such, but because of the fact that those statements have not received any pushback from uh, the Israeli authorities. And in fact, a group of prominent Israelis, from scientists to academics to journalists, last week wrote a letter to, to the top legal establishment, to the attorney general, to the justice minister, expressing their dismay and frustration with the fact that, as they see, the judiciary has been turning a blind eye to those comments, which um, appear to be clear examples of hate speech. And some legal experts believe that because those comments were not addressed and we haven't seen a single criminal case, criminal investigations looking into, into those remarks, it could look as if the state of Israel has normalized this discourse and it could in a way prove the intent. And again, just finally, one, one very quick remark, which I should have mentioned in the beginning. Obviously, this case could take years if it's admitted, but what we will know this weekend or early this next week is whether the court will decide to hear this case at all. And if it decides to hear it, we might end up with an injunction calling on Israel to put measures in place to stop what it's doing, including cease hostilities in Gaza. And Israel is signatory to the court, so it is bound by its ruling. So whatever happens in The Hague this weekend could have real-life implications on the ground in Gaza. Natalia, there's another aspect of the war I think we should talk about that you've been writing about as well, away from The Hague, away from Gaza. Looking to the north, there have been more assassinations, alleged Israeli assassinations via drones in Lebanon. Can you tell us about this? In particular, I know you wrote up the story of the assassination, the killing of the Hezbollah drone chief in, in Lebanon. What happened there? Fighting in the north of Israel has been heating up in recent weeks. Since the Hamas attack, there has been sporadic cross-border clashes. Definitely nothing to the scale what we're seeing in Gaza. But uh, things are escalating in the north. And just before 
I think around Christmas time, there was one major event which raised fears of a massive escalation in the area, which was targeting a prominent Hezbollah figure in, in Beirut, calling him in an airstrike on Beirut in Lebanon, which marks, I think, the first time in, in something like a decade since Israel has launched an airstrike on Lebanon and uh, Hezbollah has responded in kind by attacking Israeli bases in the north. And just earlier this week, I believe it was Tuesday, Israel actually claimed um, killing the head of Hezbollah's combat drone operation. So he would be the person responsible for the spate of recent attacks. Ali Hussein Barji commanded the unit in the south of Lebanon, just on the border with Israel. And typically, the IDF never claims, claims those attacks. This time, it admitted that it was behind an airstrike on a Lebanese town where um, Barji arrived for the funeral of another senior Hezbollah commander who was killed by another Israeli airstrike. Again, there's been a back and forth between Israel and Hezbollah. In uh, response to that attack, Lebanon hit an IDF base in Safed, which is a town about eight miles from the border, I believe. So that would be the furthest that Hezbollah has been able to strike in Israel. And it's an important military base. And uh, According to Israeli media, this is where you would often have top Israeli generals visiting. And obviously, if it has, I don't know, injured or, or killed a top Israeli military figure, violence in that area would spiral out of control and could spill over into a regional crisis, which everyone has tried to avoid. So the situation on the ground between Hezbollah and Israel is still very shaky. It looks like there are still certain Red lines, both parties haven't crossed, but things are definitely heating up right there. Natalia, one of the things you've said in previous podcasts is your sense that there's a, a lack of forward planning, really, from the Israelis. Of what, what do they want Gaza to be and to look like after this is all over? Do you think that's changing at all? And what sense do you get from the authorities that they're thinking about this? Yes and no. The biggest development so far is that even three or four weeks ago, Israeli authorities simply refused to talk about post-war settlement. And there was a meeting to discuss that, which was convened by security officials and war cabinet ministers, which apparently ended in nowhere due to a shouting match between the Israeli military and uh, some of the ministers. And most recently, what I've heard is, is there's a special ad hoc group uh, set up by the ruling Likud party, it doesn't look like they're looking at the nuts and bolts of who's running Gaza, but at least they are looking at the most basic things that has, has been discussed globally, which is, is the Israeli military going to stay in Gaza? Are they going to occupy the area? And from what I've been hearing, at least there's a consensus that Israel wants to stay in the immediate perimeter of the Gaza Strip. It looks like the previously discussed idea of setting up a buffer zone is still there. They want Egyptians to control the road which runs along the southern end of the Gaza Strip bordering on Egypt. But it looks like Israeli politicians are still very much reluctant to talk about the political solution, talk about whether the Palestinian Authority is going to brought in to rule it, because obviously it's going to be very unpopular. And this, despite the fact that uh, Israel's most prominent ally, the United States, has been insisted that they need to bring in Palestinian officials in some shape or form to rule that. So it, it looks like Israel has been dragging its feet on 
coming up with a concrete proposal or committing to anything simply because whatever solution there is, it looks like it's going to be hugely unpopular with the Israeli public and whether it would be Benjamin Netanyahu or another Israeli prime minister, they will have a lot of explaining to do in front of Israeli public. And just finally, Natalia, we opened this conversation and you noted that it's three months now of war, and nearly 100 days. Looking back over all of your coverage and what you've seen, what are the stories and the memories that stand out to you that you think our listeners should, should think about? Um, that's an excellent question. For starters, I would like to say that I don't think anybody imagined that it would last so long. Obviously, there's no end in sight right now, but I guess after the Hamas attack, there was an expectation that the Israeli military will respond in kind, but I guess no one could have imagined the scale of that and that Israel would be mired in those facilities which which have no end inside. Yeah, I guess looking back, you know, I'm still, um, I still cannot believe the scenes that I saw in the southern Israel of the destroyed towns and the kibbutzim, which on the one hand looked very normal, well kept, on the other hand, you know, you would... Um, you would see signs of the battle, you would see dead bodies, and it just looked very, very surreal because that area has always been really quiet. I mean, despite the fact that it was so close to Gaza. Obviously, for me as a journalist, it's extremely frustrating that I haven't been able to get into Gaza myself. As we know, the Israeli government is not allowing any any journalists there un- unless you go on an embed with them, which means you're with the military all the time. There's no way for you to be on your own and talk to locals. I really hope that, that that changes soon, but obviously there are there are journalists in Gaza, uh, local people who are risking their their lives working there, and an astonishing amount of reporters has already been killed and, and wounded working there. And we uh, we have learned so much thanks to them, but still, I guess the, the scale of the devastation in Gaza, we're not going to know it until very much later, until aid organizations will have proper access to that, and until more reporters and the national reporters uh, will be allowed in. Thank you so much, Natalia. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yan has been covering the activities of China's repressive regime for years now. I wanted to talk to her about her latest story on how China used Kazakh Chinese citizens to implement its brutal ethnic crackdowns. Here's Sophia Yan. For the last 10 years or so, uh, a very severe crackdown has been occurring in China's far west Xinjiang region. The region is home to a number of primarily Muslim ethnic minorities, the Uyghurs, the Kazakhs, Kyrgyz. And 
it's always been really difficult for them. They are ethnic minorities in a country of the Han ethnic majority. But in the last 10 years, it's gotten much, much worse. And so our audience will likely have seen in the headlines in recent years, the quote-unquote re-education camps that China had opened. The point for China was that they were trying to deal with what they said was would be terrorists, that they were trying to sort of a preventive police, try to re-educate people into being better Chinese citizens in their own definition. That would mean someone who's not religious, someone who's not praying as a Muslim, someone who's not fasting over religious holidays. They want really the Chinese government under the leadership of Xi Jinping wants to create sort of a more homogenous Chinese society. And so this crackdown has been aimed at that. Uh, Lots of mosques, for instance, have been torn down. Some of them have lost their Arab-style onion domes. And so this is to get rid of any sort of foreign influence in China. So this crackdown around for many years. And to do that, China used people, the Uyghurs, the Kazakhs, to help implement these crackdowns. So obviously the directives are coming from very senior levels, uh, usually Han officials. But then the actual implementation, we're talking guards in the camps, guards in the prisons, people actually rounding up the families. I mean, this had to be done at a a lower level, and this was generally done by local officials. And these people had no choice. This is what one of the interviewees I spoke with, Gopia Kazbek, this is what she told me. She's an ethnic Kazakh, and she, until this crackdown really worsened, she was a health official, actually. She was in charge of ensuring families stayed within China's nationwide birth limits. But then as this government crackdown started to accelerate, her responsibilities began to change. Now, as a health official trying to make sure families aren't having more kids than they're supposed to, as part of her job, she was visiting households all the time. So she had this relationship within a certain neighborhood with certain families that she would go visit their home and and take stock of how many kids they had. And so when this crackdown was increasing, her responsibilities started to change because she had that relationship and she could go to their homes she was getting these assignments to go in and to check for certain things, like whether a family had a Quran, if they had anything from a foreign country, even things like soap or chocolate, if you had from a foreign country, had to be marked down. And at the time, she said she had no idea why she was being asked to do this. She didn't know why her responsibilities were changing. But then one by one, as people started to disappear, she realized, okay, something was going on. And as the years passed, it became more and more clear what was happening because it started to happen to her own family. Her own mother was detained and rounded up, just disappeared without any notice. Uh, No idea where her mother went. She also hasn't seen her mother in person now for many years. Isn't really clear about the status and the health of her mother. And so this is the way it's it's been going for some time in China. It's really chilling. I'll read you this quote from Gulpia. So she said, you know, as the crackdown grew, she said that one night she was called back to work Rather last minute, she was already on her way home and she got this call to return. And that night, she was told, along with colleagues, to go and round up about 10 Muslim families in the neighborhood. Gulpia said to me, quote, we were told to remove their shoelaces, belts, buttons. Then we had to escort them to the police who bound their hands behind their backs, pulled a black hood over their heads and loaded them onto buses. No one knew where they were going. Were they going to their deaths or to study in a re-education camp? Would they return or would they disappear? Uh, And this is just one of the many, many things, many details that she shared with me. And it's really harrowing to have to do this. You know, she said she really had no choice. First, her mother was detained. That was, she thought, a way to pressure her to make sure she did as told. 
And of course, if she didn't follow these instructions for more senior levels of government, then she could be thrown into camp too. So this is something that is still ongoing in Xinjiang today, this crackdown against Uyghurs and Kazakhs. Sophia, how was she able to tell you the story? What, I mean, presumably she's not in China anymore. How did, the, how did this come about? Gulpia has since moved to Kazakhstan. She, she got very lucky, honestly. So for, for many years, the Chinese government has restricted travel abroad of ethnic minorities. That was happening even before COVID. And then, of course, when the coronavirus pandemic came into play, there was no traveling, I mean, everywhere in the world. But China was very tight on this still. Golpia got lucky in the sense that as more was highlighted about the human rights abuses in Xinjiang, China, the government at least, was trying to sort of whitewash what it was doing. They were denying everything, basically. And they still are in many ways. And so they started to give some passports out to people. And Gulpia managed to get one. I mean, even getting a passport for an ethnic minority in China is a real ordeal. Even requesting one could be enough to land you in prison. And so she really got lucky. I mean, she didn't know at the time what was going on. She was just taking her chances because she really felt like she couldn't stay there anymore and that she had to leave. She wanted to get out of China with her family. And so she put in for this request on a passport. She was really risking Absolutely everything. She said when she went in to hear the decision as to whether or not she and her family would be granted passports, she had taken a bunch of painkillers with her so that she could kill herself if if they took her into prison or to a camp uh, as a response for her passport request. And so because there was more external attention and pressure on China for these human rights abuses, and again, China trying to whitewash what it was doing, Gulpia managed to get a passport. It was really very fortunate, very lucky on the timing. And she had done this request on the pretense that she needed to go abroad for medical treatment. And she did need some medical attention. And so that's how Gulpia was able to leave. She crossed over the land border from China into Kazakhstan. This is one of the world's longest land borders. And she crossed at this point called Horgos, which is actually the site also of a major Belt and Road project. This is China's big foreign policy initiative. And so it's this one spot, uh, a free trade zone, and she was able to cross over and enter Kazakhstan. And after getting to Kazakhstan, she, of course, never went back to China. So she still has siblings in China. Her mother's still there. It's really hard for people like Gultia to have contact with family still in Xinjiang, because even that contact that they have, because they're abroad, because Gulpia and her family are abroad, and because they fled, just that contact and the link could be very problematic for their relatives that remain at home. Sophia, just finally, let's stay in China. Last week, we spoke to Nicholas Smith, the Telegraph's Asia correspondent, about the upcoming elections in Taiwan. She gave us a, a rundown of the candidates, of the political stances, what's at stake. Could you give your sense of how this is being seen in China and what this means for China's foreign policy? And maybe it'd be good to start with talking a little bit about Xi Jinping's New Year's message. Yeah, well, the Taiwanese election for China is always a bit of a political threat because Taiwan is in the greater China sphere. It is the only democracy, true democracy in that sense, in that area. And it's a it's a living, breathing example of what leaders like Xi Jinping have often said. They often say that democracy doesn't work for the Chinese people. They just say that they're like, this isn't for us, you know, and Taiwan is a great example of actually it being totally fine for the Chinese people. It's a really interesting propaganda line that they always have. And the election in Taiwan, definitely an exercise in democracy, people coming out to vote for who they want as their leader. And at this point, the tension across the Taiwan Strait between China and Taiwan, it's gotten really 
intense, if you if you want to use that word. It, it hasn't escalated to full out war, but Xi Jinping in China has made clear that he would be willing to take Taiwan back by force if necessary. And so this has been of increasing concern for the government also in Taiwan, because there's a, a sense that that should not be allowed to happen. Now, there's a lot riding on the election in the sense that depending on who comes into power, that obviously will have some impact on how Taiwan's policy toward China will be. But also because the tensions have risen so much, it's hard to see how any candidate who might take the post as president this coming year could actually get that much closer to China. There is a way to manage that relationship. That's what some experts think to not embarrass China so publicly, for instance, to sort of maintain the status quo. And so depending who takes the reins, it may not have actually as much of an impact on Taiwan's policy toward China at this point, because again, there's there's not really much sentiment that Taiwan should be a part of China. Not anymore. Thanks for that explanation, Sophia. And just to finish then, Xi Jinping's New Year speech, what did he say? How did he say it? And what do you think we should take from it? Well, she gives an annual address on New Year's Eve, the calendar New Year's Eve, because there's also Lunar New Year for, for China that they'll celebrate in a few weeks' time. In this speech, he said about Taiwan, quote, China will surely be reunified and all Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Strait should be bound by a common sense of purpose and share in the glory of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Now, this is something that Xi Jinping has said many times. He is always talking about reunification, the glorification of the Chinese nation. It's a lot of rhyming <laughs> in English uh, and same in Chinese when he says it. It's like actually very melodic the way he, he speaks uh, when he gives these stock phrases. This is something that is a, a message that many people like to hear. It's tried and true. It's a way to shore up nationalist sentiments at a time when the Chinese economy is waning. Also in this speech, she gave this rare admission that economic growth is an issue. Now, the sort of unwritten, unofficial promise that the Chinese government has always had with its people is that there will always be greater economic fortune, that the life of the next generation will always be better than the last. And in exchange, the society has less freedom. This is sort of the un unspoken, unofficial uh, pact that the government has always had with its people. I mean, this is something that was very clear after the crackdown in 1989 in Tiananmen Square. For decades, the Chinese government has delivered on this promise, but more recently, that's become more of an issue. Even before the coronavirus pandemic, the Chinese economy was seeing much slower growth. And now after the pandemic, like many other countries in the world, there's a, a real concern about the economy. For this year, the estimate for 2024 GDP, it's around 4 or 5%. If you compare that to, say, the US or the UK, that seems really pretty good. But it wasn't that long ago that we were seeing double-digit growth year-on-year year in China. So this is a very big change. The fact that Xi Jinping has admitted to this is really interesting because this is the kind of thing that could create political instability, social instability. And this is something that the Chinese government tries to avoid at all costs all the time. So trying to shift the attention and the focus onto something like Taiwan is, is a good idea. This is something that she has done before. The Chinese government often takes this approach to distract a little bit over the, the real hard things, the real challenges, and to take a message and a line that everyone can get on board with. 
So this is, this is an interesting way to look at how this year will play out for China. China will celebrate its 75th anniversary this year. And so that's a, a big milestone. And for Xi, it, what this means is that everything's got to be good. So he'll be keeping an eye on that this year. Listeners may want to know, actually, that in our new revised intro for Battle Lines, we do have a bit of that speech from Xi Jinping at the end. And I believe it's the section, Sophia, that you quoted just then. Just very quickly and very finally then, for non-China watchers, how serious should we take what he's saying? I mean, you, you seem to be suggesting that it's potentially more for domestic consumption, that it's, as you said, it's a good, it's a good way to get people sort of enthusiastic and riled up, distracting from the economic situation. Is, is that fair or how worried should we be? Well, what's interesting about China is that its domestic and foreign policy are often one and the same. So it is definitely a message directed at the domestic audience to Chinese citizens. But China also has been pretty clear. I mean, this is what Xi Jinping wants. There's a big question as to when he might do it. There are different predictions from various analysts on when that might take place. But really what it boils down to is what Xi Jinping thinks. And Unfortunately, he's someone like Putin. We, we can't really be in his mind. The big wild card is, will things get so bad in China that Xi Jinping has to go to war as a distraction? Right now, he's just talking about this, right? He's just talking about the idea that China and Taiwan are, are one country. And that, for now, seems enough for that distraction, this, this idea of a, a, a message, an idea that everyone can get on board with to help them think about something other than the waning economy. I mean, unemployment's very high, for instance, right now. So the question is, yeah, does it get so bad that he has to go take such a big step? And if so, when will that be? And what would that look like? Uh, I mean, the world, frankly, can't really take another war at this point. Uh, it would be devastating, to say the least. And it, it's just it's something that would be so destabilizing. But Xi Jinping's in power for another five years. He might stay in power for an additional five years after that. He's already in this unprecedented third term. So if his goal is to stay in power, then this is a decision that many experts imagine won't be taken by him, even him, very lightly. Sophia Yan, thank you so much for your time. For our last story this week, we head to Ecuador, where President Daniel Noboa has declared a state of internal conflict as security forces battle powerful drugs gangs. The upsurge in violence is shocking and making news around the world. I wanted to understand how the gangs became so powerful, what this means for the global drugs trade, and what the future looks like for Ecuador. Here's Matthew Charles, an academic and journalist who writes regularly on the region for The Telegraph. Matt, thank you so much for your time. We're seeing... A lot of alarming headlines coming out of Ecuador at the moment. Maybe you can start with the news that one of the country's most wanted gang leaders escaped jail in the recent weeks. Who were they? What happened? Yeah, so this happened um, on Sunday. His name is uh, Jose Adolfo Macias Villamar, or alias Fito. He's, he's more commonly known as Fito. And he, since 2020, has been the leader of Ecuador's largest gang, Los Choneros. Basically, in 2020, what happened was the leader of Los Choneros was murdered, which basically started this latest wave of violence that we've seen in Ecuador. 
We don't really know why he was murdered, but the speculation is it was the result of some kind of infighting. Because since then, what's happened is the Joneros has basically broken into several other other factions. But uh, Alias Fito, who escaped on Sunday, he became the leader of the largest faction of this gang. And it's quite interesting because police noticed he was messing on Sunday morning. It's not quite clear whether he escaped during prison riots that happened on Sunday or if the prison riots ensued after the news of his escape. It shows that the, the Ecuadorian prison system is not fit for purpose. But what's absolutely fascinating for me is Alias Vito was being held in a, a wing of the prison where prisoners enjoy certain rights, yeah? and he's meant to be being held in maximum security. So that's what was happening on Sunday. He was being moved back to maximum security, but before that could happen, he escaped. And he's escaped before. He escaped in 2013. After several days on the run, he was, he was found. He's convicted of 30 years for murder, drug trafficking, and other charges related to, to organized crime. And he was signaled, I don't know if you remember, but in, in August in, in Ecuador, a presidential candidate was assassinated. And Fito was signaled out by this candidate as someone that had threatened him in the weeks before the murder. And then when the assassination happened, it emerged that Fito was not being held in maximum security. So they moved him back to maximum security in September. So at some point between September and Sunday, he's also been released into a part of the prison uh, where he can enjoy more rights. So it, it shows the level of corruption in the, in the Ecuadorian prison system. Before we go on then and talk about the violence sweeping the country in the past few days, let's step back. Can you sketch out for us the political and economic scene in Ecuador, just to help us better understand the context for all this violence? Sure. Uh, I mean, Ecuador is not a rich country, right? It struggles to find the resources to tackle the level of, of organized crime in the country. Much of the systems that they have in place for searching shipping containers that, that leave Guayaquil, which is one of the biggest ports in, in Latin America. All of those resources have been donated or are funded by the, the British, the French, and you know American governments. So this is a country that has a huge budget deficit. It struggles with finding resources to tackle organized crime. And it's also a country that's very polarized. There's a very strong leftist section. You may remember President Rafael Correa, who ruled Ecuador. The leftist president supported Julian Assange. Uh, the left still enjoys a lot of support, but it is a country that struggles politically. And I think the system there is mainly characterized by corruption. The three predecessors of the current president, if not four, are all being investigated on corruption charges. So it shows that you know this isn't just uh, a small problem. This reaches the highest levels of, of politics. Well, can you tell us a bit more about the current president, who's hugely important in, in what's happening in Ecuador at the moment, Daniel Naboa? Tell us, tell us about him and his presidency. So he was elected in November. He's Ecuador's youngest ever president. He's 35. He's the son of a banana mogul who he comes from Ecuador's richest family. And his campaign was quite interesting because during the campaign, he didn't mention a hardline approach to security at all. Obviously, security is one of the biggest issues. But at, at the beginning of the campaign, he was uh, suggesting that Ecuador needed stronger social policies to, to tackle organized crime. Then with the assassination of one of his rivals, 
he changed his stance and started talking about a more hardline security approach. And that's something that we're, we're seeing now. This state of emergency, the declaration of internal armed conflict is a result of this change in his style of politics. And it will be a challenge for, for reasons I've already mentioned, not least resources. Where will the money come from for these kinds of operations? And on Thursday morning, he summoned all foreign ambassadors to the presidential palace for a meeting. Uh, we don't know why, but I guess one of the main reasons was he was asking for financial support for his operations. And since then, we've also seen a rise in, in VAT. So we may see further tax rises to fund his, his hardline approach. President Naboa has said that Ecuador is, and you've just alluded to it as well, he said that they're at war with the drug skanks. Could we go into some detail on this? What does that war look like on the ground for ordinary Ecuadorians? Well, we've seen after the escape of Alias Fito, he declared a state of emergency. Now, that is something quite common in Ecuador. We've seen, I think, more than 50 in the past couple of years. But this gives the police extra powers and can impose curfews in, in certain cities or in certain neighborhoods. And it allows the police, it gives them stronger powers to enter into people's properties, to, to stop and search, etc. But the declaration of an internal armed conflict is unprecedented in Ecuador. I mean, he's basically saying that there's now a civil war with these organized criminal groups, which he now refers to. And interestingly, all mainstream media in Ecuador now refer to as terrorists. So, you know, obviously there's a change in, in stance. Whether or not that will be successful or how that plays out, that's, that's the biggest question. I mean, history shows us, research shows us that when governments start referring to or change their policy towards organized criminal groups and refer to them as terrorists, they politicize these groups and can often end up kind of turning them into more legitimate political actors. And that can be dangerous in a weak state such as Ecuador. So I think there are many more difficult days ahead before we see any real kind of impact of, of his policies. In terms of what's happening on the streets then, is it sort of shootouts between the police and the drug gangs, raids in certain neighborhoods? What's actually happening? Well, after the president declared the state of emergency, that's what we saw. We saw gangs invade a live TV news broadcast. We saw them open fire on police officers, on civilians in the bus station, burning cars and taking more prison officers and police officers hostage. We saw them executed in horrendous videos on social media. And we saw a message basically saying, all police officers and civilians are now targets in this war that you have declared, Mr. President. So Guayaquil closed down, people barricaded themselves in their houses, and still all schools are closed, the university is closed, and businesses are, are scared to open. In terms of the security operation, I think there's only been 70 or 80 arrests so far. We haven't seen any major operations. And I think that's probably because this took the security forces by surprise. So they will need some time to, to figure out what they want to do, where they want to go, who they want to arrest. The president has a strategy, a security strategy, which he announced when he took office, which is called the Phoenix Security Strategy. As part of that, he planned to create more checkpoints at key kind of points of transport infrastructure. He planned to allow the military more, give them more powers within civilian policing operations. But he also wanted to build more prisons and create a mega prison. 
none of that has happened yet. So if he wants to arrest more gangsters, where will they go? Ecuador's prison system is one of the most overcrowded in the world. The government, the state does not control these prisons. These prisons are controlled by the gangs. And if he sends more people to these prisons, in a way, he's, he's just recruiting more people for organized crime. So some analysts are saying that his strategy or his declaration of an internal armed conflict came too soon because the systems are not in place to be able to deal with that or implement that effectively. How do we get to this position? How do the drug gangs in Ecuador become so powerful? Um, uh, it's a really good question. And I think this is not new in Ecuador. Right? Drug trafficking is not new in Ecuador. But since 2020, since the murder of the leader of the Choneros that I, I mentioned at the beginning, there's been huge infighting. And I think that happened for the simple reason that senior leaders within the Choneros gang saw opportunities to make money and to make money for themselves. What's happened since 2020, or maybe started in 2018, 2019, is the, the amount of cocaine being seized, exported from, from Ecuador has risen massively. So we assume then that there's more trafficking going through Ecuador. One of the reasons for that is it's becoming increasingly difficult to move cocaine out of Colombia, for example. Because the Coast Guard, the authorities are now much more used to it. They have stricter operations. The US is involved. The British Navy is involved in operations in the Caribbean. And so organized crime has needed to shift its operations further south. And Ecuador is obviously the perfect place for that because it's right in between Colombia and Peru and Bolivia, the three countries where the world's cocaine you know, comes from. And what's happened in Ecuador is you have the big Mexican cartels who work with these gangs on the ground. So it's the Mexican cartels that, that buy the cocaine, get the cocaine shipped to Mexico, and then distribute it in the US. There are also European mafia involved, especially from Albania and other European countries that then you know, ship the, the cocaine to European ports. So these Ecuadorian gangs, they function as guards, if you like. They guide and protect the shipments of cocaine as they move through Ecuador. And so that's why they, they fight for more territory, they fight for more turf, because it gives them more space to generate more income. And I think this is now a key question, because if we have an internal armed conflict, if we have increased security operations, will this interrupt the cocaine supply chain? And if that's the case, how will the Mexicans respond? One is they could fuel the, the violence by offering more arms to the groups. Investigations that we've done at The Telegraph before have shown that uh, often when Mexican cartels kind of contract the Ecuadorian gangs, they don't pay them with money, they pay them with arms, basically. So that's one of the reasons that this violence has exploded as well. If more of that comes, then that poses more of a danger to the state, or it could be that the Mexicans decide this is too risky and we'll move even further. Uh, and, and Peru obviously has big ports that could be used to ship the cocaine. It's already happening to a certain extent, and we've seen Peru respond to this crisis by declaring a, a state of emergency in the border region, in the states of Peru that border Ecuador. They are now under a state of emergency. And we've also seen in recent years a trend anyway that cocaine is also now being shipped from Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, perhaps not the most obvious places. It, it takes much longer to move cocaine from these places, but that doesn't matter for organized crime. It, it's not the 
the the logistics, if you like. It's it's the risk involved that's the biggest issue for them. Matt, how dangerous do you think this is for regional and global stability then? I mean, you're, you're painting a picture where almost every single country has links and the cartels in every single country have links with everybody else. It feels like a bit of a tinderbox. What, what do you think? Definitely. I mean, we've seen what's happened to Ecuador in the last four or five years. And Peru is obviously, it has that on its rate. And that's why it's reacting in the way that it has. It is likely that this can spill over and this will be a major concern for for the authorities. But as I say, it's something that's already happening. And we see in Brazil, we see in Argentina, we see smaller gangs being used in the same way that the uh, gangs in Ecuador are used by the by the Mexican cartels. Whether this then generates more violence, because often it does, because what happens is the gangs become greedy, you get infighting, you, you see people saying, well, I could set up my own group to get money from these Mexicans. And if we see that starting to happen in other countries, then yes, we will see further destabilization. But that is something that the authorities will be extremely aware of. But these are countries that are not used to tackling organized crime. So these are countries that will need support if they are to carry out further checks, for example, on the shipping containers that leave the ports in Brazil and Argentina and even Chile, because these are countries that are not used to organized crime. Violence on the streets, uh, a system that's unable to cope, schools and universities closed, a president on the brink. You're painting what sounds like a very grim picture for the near future in Ecuador. What do you think happens next? How do you see this developing? I think much will depend on the resources that the the state can generate to tackle organized crime. Will they arrest the gangsters? Where will they put them? And how will the gangs respond? We've seen the gang violence this week, but we don't know which gang or which gangs are carrying out that violence. Is it just the Choneros that responded to the to the leader escaping and then the declaration uh, of the state of emergency? Some have suggested that this response is precisely a warning to the government not to implement hardline policies. I think it took everyone by surprise because it also showed the strength of the gangs. We've been talking for the past two years that the Choneros are no longer the powerhouse that they were because of the infighting and because of the other factions that have, that have broken off. But if it was them fighting this week, then that's a clear sign to the government that they still have power, that they still have weapons. And if the Mexicans carry on providing weapons to the gangs that they cooperate with in Ecuador, this will get more violent. This will become bloodier. There is absolutely no doubt about that. But I suspect the Mexicans may start to turn their attention elsewhere because this doesn't help. Violence in Ecuador does not help their business interests. So in some ways, I think we may be more dependent on the Mexican cartels to guarantee peace than the the state security apparatus of Ecuador. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. 
battle lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.